Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. I'm your host, Sean McDowell, professor of apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. And I'm your co-host, Scott Ray, dean of faculty and professor of Christian ethics, also at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. Today, we're here with a guest that I've been looking forward to having on for a long time. Number one, she's a personal friend. Number two is a graduate of our Biola MA in Apologetics program. Mary Jo Sharp has written a new book that's just wonderful. I want to commend to all our listeners. It's called Why I Still Believe. She is a full-time professor at Houston Baptist University, writes and speaks, and has just made a wonderful contribution in the world of apologetics and beyond. Mary Jo, thanks for joining us. Hey, guys. It's so good to be on today. So in this book, it really is an apologetics book, but in another sense, it's your story, it's your journey, and you do apologetics, but just in a narrative fashion, which I love. So maybe let's just start by you sharing your journey to faith, kind of from atheism to becoming a Christian. Yeah. Um, well, part of my journey is that I didn't grow up Christian, and I think sometimes people have trouble with understanding that on the outset because they... Um, they hear my name's Mary Jo, and uh, you know I have this Southern Baptist background, so they think I was like born and raised in the church in the South, and <laughs> that's not the case. I, I actually grew up. Um, not, I did not grow up in church, and I grew up in a somewhat post-Christian culture in uh, Portland, Oregon. In fact, I recently found an article about Oregon that said, you know, Oregon had one of the lowest participations in religion in the country back in like even the fifties. Wow, so very, that's that yeah, far very, back. Huh? Yeah, I was pretty. I was pretty shocked when I found that. Um, so for me, Christianity wasn't part of the culture I grew up in. It wasn't a huge part. Uh, it was what it was was what I saw on TV and the movies. So it's pretty shallow. But what I did experience growing up in that area was the great beauty of the Pacific Northwest. So I saw, you know, the the beauty and power of the ocean. The you know the um, we also had a rich cultural um, environment in that my parents loved to take a, me to the symphony and to um, opera and anything that plays, anything they could get their hands on that way. So I saw the beauty of what humans could do through the arts. And then my dad was just a huge nature and science buff. So uh, he really exposed me to like Carl Sagan and, and uh, what people could do through the sciences. And I think over the years, these areas profoundly impacted me. They made me have awe and wonder at the goodness, truth, and beauty I found in the universe. So much so that I think it made me more receptive to discovering what was behind all of it. Well, in high school, I had a high school uh, band teacher. And for those of you who don't know, I actually went and got a degree in music education and taught band for a while. So I really respected this guy. And uh, he was a Christian who hadn't shared his faith with anyone before. And he was burdened for me. So my senior year of high school, he gave me a Bible. And he said, when you go off to college, you're going to have hard questions. I hope you'll turn to this. So I actually started reading that Bible. Wow. Came around to, yeah, I came around to thinking, you know, this, there's probably a God. You know, I should investigate this because it seems to be answering um, what is the source of all that beauty I found. Um, so in college, I went to church for the first time on my own. And after looking around a little bit, I found a church that gave a clear presentation of the good news of the Savior for mankind. And it really brought everything together for me. And so I trusted in Jesus for my salvation. Wow. That's so, let me get this straight. Your high school music teacher gave you a Bible 
in an effort to do something that the culture might define as proselytizing and would probably be fired for today. Is that right? Yeah, he actually, when he tells the story, <laughs> he says he felt like he was going to get fired. Oh, yeah. is that he right? Was, wow. Yeah. <clears throat> Because I didn't respond apparently real well, so he thought I was going <laughs> to like turn him in. I thought you were going to rat him out. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so Mary Jo, before you came to faith, uh, you you were a, you were a self described atheist. Uh, what were your impressions of Christians and Christianity before you came to faith? Yeah, my impressions of Christianity, as I mentioned earlier, I was I had a pretty shallow view because. I didn't know much about Christianity and my, and my culture wasn't culturally Christian. So I sort of thought Christians were weird. Um, they were, they were the fringe of society. Like they weren't normal people. Normal people didn't believe in God um, or didn't have a need for that. But then there were these people that went to church. So they were sort of on the fringe of society. That was my view of Christians. Um, now, I wouldn't have said it that way because I was taught, like, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. <laughs> so I would never have said that to anybody. But that was, I didn't know what, why they were Christians. Um, and then Christianity, to me, I grew up in the 1980s. And I saw the televangelists and some of the scandals that happened there. And so to me, it looked like an institutional organization that just it sort of asked for people's money, but they weren't to be trusted. Mm. So. I saw it as something that people kind of just did. They did it for whatever reason they needed that. Um, but it wasn't for the intelligent, compassionate human beings, but just for some those people who needed something in their life that I didn't need. Um, and I probably would have seen it also as people who desired power and control. Like I would have that view of some of the pastors in Christianity. Now you're an apologist today. You're writing, speaking, teaching, is defending the faith. But that wasn't really an initial barrier, if I understand correctly, for you coming to faith. What were some of those biggest barriers, and why do you think apologetics is so important today? Yeah, I would think one of my biggest barriers, you know, reflecting back on coming to belief in God, was that that idea of the need to be saved. Um, saved from what is what I would have asked you, because. I would have thought, and I actually argued this with my parents. I was like, hey, I'm a good kid. Like, I don't murder, rape, steal. I'm not a drunk. I don't do drugs. Like, why are you guys on my case? Because I'm a good kid. And I think one of the biggest barriers for me coming into Christianity was gaining an understanding that I wasn't actually a good person, that I needed something like salvation. I think that was a huge barrier for me. Um, it took me a long time to come to that understanding. So it was years of searching. Was that reading scripture? Was that just self-awareness? Was that the Holy Spirit or all those things? What was it that made you go, oh my goodness, I am a sinner and I need to be saved? Yeah, it was really, the first thing was reading through the Bible um, and seeing how the Bible described, you know, the the human experience and the and the problem that people uh, the problem of mankind that he continues to do the wrong thing, uh, even when God himself is, you know, even when Jesus is walking among them, people still don't believe people still do what's wrong. People, like the heart of man that I saw in the Bible really convinced me about, yeah, there are things that I'm harboring too. And, you know, I say I'm good, but I have selfishness. I say I love my neighbor, but 
I don't want to get entangled with their problems or their lives. And so I started to see that from reading the scripture. And obviously the Holy Spirit, now I understand like the Holy Spirit was working on me and saying, yeah, I see this is what we're talking about. You're, you're not basically good. There are things that even you do. They may be smaller. They're not the big like murder or rape, but they're things that slowly, like, like I had a friend slowly hurt people. Like I had a friend that was a longtime childhood friend. Um, and then when I was in around junior high, I got into a different group of friends. Well, I didn't want to hang out with this other girl. So I just like trashed our friendship just so I could hang out with these other people. So things like that, I, I started to understand that I didn't have to murder. I could do things like I could harm people in, I don't know, we would call them lesser ways, but it was still very psychologically damaging. Um, or I could lie to my parents and that wasn't good. So those kinds of things started to weigh heavily on me. So Mary Jo, you, you come to faith. Uh, out of atheism, and you started attending a church. What was that like for you to to enter a church as a former atheist now come to faith? <laughs> it was weird. <laughs> <laughs> could you could you spell that out a little bit? <laughs> well, I was so nervous because I had grown up with like very little understanding of what church is or what it's for, or what to expect. So I really felt like the old paradigm of being the new kid in class. You like you walk in and everybody else knows what they're doing and they've been there a while and you have no idea. Like you're walking in there like, uh, okay, so do I stand up? When do I sit down? You know, all these things. There's even like a Mr. Bean, that old show. There's an episode of him in church where he's like, <laughs> Oh, I got to stand up. I got to sit. I felt kind of like Mr. Bean in church. <laughs> and uh, I, um, you know, I didn't have great experiences when I first started going to church, um, especially as a new believer. And I write about that in my book. I immediately, from the very first day I went as a new believer to church, I experienced judgmentalism really? from um, leaders in the church. Yeah. Really? Because I, I wasn't how, dressed how right. Yeah, yeah, I guess. I had two dresses because I was a poor college student <laughs> and I picked one of them and apparently the one I picked wasn't church worthy or something like that. Um, I, I don't know because I'm a Northwesterner and we tend to be grungy, not flashy. So um, I didn't know that I was not dressed well. And, and the thing that was really, that really hurt was this was my first day in church and I'm picking out what I think is my best. And I'm immediately, instead of welcomed and said, hey, I hear that you became a new believer and I'm so excited for you. Welcome to the family, you know, blah, blah, blah. Any of that. The first thing I hear is, Hey, um, honey, we got to find you better clothes. Like that's my great welcome into church. <laughs> how, how could we be so unclear on the concept? Uh, <laughs> oh, that is, that is tragic to hear. You know, Mary Jo, I was talking with my father. He wasn't an atheist, but was an agnostic. And I said, was there any time in your journey you thought about just leaving the faith? And he said, when I was young, I went to church and people just gossiped so much. And it made me wonder, is this really real and true? It was that experience. As you look at other atheists and nonbelievers, how central do you think is just the hurt that Christians in the walls of the church or the judgmentalism outside plays and why people don't even consider Christianity and its truth claims. Yeah, I think it plays in a lot. Um, you know, it's, there's the, the apologist side of me today wants to say, 
hey, you know, the, the propositional truth of Christianity is not affected by the, um, the behaviors of Christians. But, I, but the other side of me, like the, <laughs> I, I don't know that there's non-pologist side, but the other, there's a part of me that just says, hey, um, you know, even Jesus talked about this, in, about how the, the way we treat one another is going to be a testimony to the world about who he is and whether or not God really sent him. That's the John 17 passage where Jesus is praying for our unity when he's in the garden right before he goes to the cross. Uh, and he's praying for us to all be one and to love each other greatly so that the world can know that he's God's son. And I don't think Christians are taking that seriously enough that the hypocrisy that they show um, is actually very damaging to people's belief that God is real and that he really changes people's lives because they just don't see it in the Christians. So Mary Jo, what, what happened with your family after you came to faith? Um, just tell us a little bit about what those interactions were like after you came to Christ. Well, I actually, I had a, my family was really pretty good about it. Um, I was chided about it and there were some things that I was teased over. Um, there was even some initial disappointment uh, at the denomination that I chose to be a part of. But over time, they, we have like, Oregon has sort of a Midwestern niceness to it. And religion is something that you just don't bring up or you just don't talk about. So whatever anyone chooses to believe, that's up to them. And you just kind of leave it. So I didn't have a big falling out with my family. They probably thought I was weird. And I was worried that they'd think I'd been brainwashed by some like fundamentalist preacher or something. But there was there wasn't a huge fallout. Um, and of course, when I was a young Christian, I was super on fire. And I was trying to share the gospel with everybody right away. And just like a bull in a china shop running into that and doing that probably not doing it in a way that was um, real effective. Uh, so <laughs> I, I would say, you know, I've had some friends in my life that, uh, like Nabil Qureshi, like when he left the faith, it was devastating to his family. He and left the Muslim was, faith. Right. Sorry, right. sorry. Yeah. When he left the <laughs> Islamic faith. Appreciate that clarification. <laughs> yes, thank you, Sean. <laughs> When he left Islam, it was just there was a huge falling out with his family. And I got to see that up close and personal and the anguish that was there. And I remember thinking one time when we were in a car together on the way to an event, I was thinking as I watched and talked to his family members, I was like, I don't have this kind of problem. Um, not at all. And in some ways, it makes it difficult to talk to my family about my beliefs because they are uh, more of live and let live kind of people. So that's how my interactions have gone. I try to talk to them about, you know, the things they care about and, and gear it towards helping them understand my faith. But um, there was no fallout. Chapter five in your book is titled Lessons from a Sociopath and an Ex-Muslim. And I enjoyed that in particular because I know David and Nunabil. And you also talk about your time in the Biola MA apologetics program and how formative that was. Can you talk a little bit about maybe some of the classes or experiences? Because you cite specifically like Clay Jones' class and some of the content was game-changing for you and how those relationships with David Nabil at that time were also really formative as well. Yeah, that's a lot of stuff. So let's <laughs> let's distill that somehow. <laughs> um, 
So one of the, the let's go back to the MAA first. Uh, I entered that program right when I was going through a real season of doubt when I was really questioning from the hypocrisy and judgmentalism that I'd experienced in the church. I was really questioning whether or not anybody really believed and you know why these people profess the Bible is true. And then I, I found this degree program in an advertisement in the Christian Research Journal. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to do this, um, which was real life-changing for me because I thought I was going on to get a master's of music education. Uh, so to just make a sudden turnaround like this was really, boy, it was quite a life change. But when I got there, um, the classes, they did, they did dive into, you know, handling the problem of evil and um, some of the philosophical ideologies like the deconstructivism that was present in our culture and postmodernism. And so they were, they were actually handling the questions that I had about how I know what I know and why I believe what I do. But also I found this group of people, the students who were spending their money uh, just to get to know God. <laughs> and I'd never encountered this before. It's awesome. Like, it was so powerful. They were not expecting to get a job out of this. They weren't seeking fame or fortune. They, they just wanted to know God and know him deeply. Um, and I remember one phone call back home to my husband the first summer I was at Biola. And I literally said, oh my gosh, I found the church. They're hiding out at a university in La Mirada, California. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> and he's like, "That's a little dramatic." And I was like, "I mean, it felt that way to me." <laughs> and you are a drama person, so that's fitting. Oh yeah, right? yeah, very. Well. <laughs> but I also found um, I met two friends, David and Nabil, and um, yeah, I talk in the book about one night we all went out to dinner, and I got to watch them engage each other. And it was really endearing to see how they chided each other. And but what what really impacted me was what they talked about. They they were focused on all these conversations they were having with people who didn't believe in God or who believed differently than they they did. And that was like their their whole life was wrapped up in that. And I was I was so impressed by them because the Christians I had encountered in the church were they they didn't look much different from the world. They cared about all the same things as other people like, you know, school, jobs, politics, just all that stuff. And here were two guys that were just centered on theology and philosophy. And they were talking about all these things about other people and evangelism. And they really impressed me. Um, they, uh, <laughs> they, they kind of got me wrapped up into what they were doing. Uh, I agreed to do a debate review for them. And then all of a sudden that turned into helping do ministry with them. And, and eventually I always credit them with launching me in ministry because these two guys who were such big personalities and big personalities for Jesus, they actually helped me to see how selfish I was um, and how I just, how I was using introversion as an excuse not to care and how I just wanted my own little life the way I wanted it. And I didn't want it disrupted. And into that world come David and Nabil with these six foot tall personalities <laughs> and they just <laughs> disrupt everything that I was holding on to and show me um that selfishness and how and they started to shed some of that from me. Um they, they were that process of shedding that to where I was like, wow, why don't I care? Why don't I rush into um wanting to see people saved? And and David and Nabil were just they impressed me in those ways. So 
that was a lot, but that's, that was what happened there at the uh, Biola program. That was great, Mary Jo. Exactly what I was looking for. Yeah. Now, Mary Jo, you've, you share in your book that you've had the, the opportunity to do various debates with atheists, nonbelievers. Um, I, I wonder, was that a bit of stepping out of your comfort zone and, uh, you know, maybe, maybe somewhat disruptive? Um, and then I'd also be interested just to know, can I help us uh, with maybe a, a couple really memorable moments that have come out of some of these debates? Yeah, it was extremely disruptive. There were no plans to ever debate anyone <laughs> in, uh, in. I wonder what your live and let live family thought about that. <laughs> oh, let's answer that because when my dad found out that I was hanging out with an with an ex-Muslim and a sociopath that were doing these public debates, he said, really, Mary Jo, really? Is this like what's really good for you? <laughs> wow. <laughs> like he was so worried about me. Like, You're going to get yourself in trouble. And anyway, <laughs> that's another story. But um, so disruptive. Yes. I mean, Nabil actually was the one that did the public throwdown and challenge for me to do my first formal public debate. Uh, so yeah, it was very disruptive because that was not on the radar in the back of my mind. I'm conducting a symphony orchestra somewhere, <laughs> not, <laughs> not doing this. And a memorable moment was so not in my, well, there was definitely memorable moments from the formal, the public debates, but I ran an informal debate group for a long time on Facebook. It was called two chicks apologetics and it existed. Yeah. <laughs> I love that title. That that's a tribute to Gary Habermas, who loved the name of it, and so I kept it. <laughs> two chicks apologetics. Um, there were two of us girls doing it, but uh, it, it existed until Facebook changed their formatting and just destroyed it. But when I was doing that, there was a gentleman that was debating with me, and his his argument was the Christ myth theory. And so mm. we were back and forth, back and forth, and. After he did some work, like I sent him to read the stories, I sent him to consider like, well, what is the philosophical and theological outworkings of these stories and that? And he did the work on it. And he actually came back and he said he felt ridiculous he ever argued it. So then he got more interested in working through the argument for God's existence from the existence of logic and rationality. So he started like arguing against himself. He created this argument and then he tried to tear it down and he realized he couldn't tear it down. And so at that time, I was getting ready to present a paper at the Evangelical Philosophical Society Conference in Rhode Island. And he wanted to come see me and see my wow. paper on Christ cool. myth theory. So he jumps in his car in mid-America and he drives across the country, picks up a, a more well-known internet atheist along the way. I think that was for like support. <laughs> and he shows up at my paper and when he did, when he and his friend did, like the philosophers and the apologists at the conference, they just went out of their way to spend time with these guys. They were having like two hour discussions late into the night after full days of being at these conferences and presenting papers and other presentations. And the reason I bring this one up was I was so nervous about my paper. I mean, I actually had William Lane Craig attend my paper, which just terrified me. Wow, And so I was all wrapped up into how I was coming across and, and what this meant for me. And, and as this whole thing unfolded, I went, this was never about me. This was always about him. And this guy eventually with, came to know Christ as his savior. 
So that was one of the ones that impacted me most was just like the whole orchestration of all these events that went around this guy coming to know the Lord and the lesson I learned about being too focused on yourself. Mary Jo, I thought it was really interesting that you have a chapter called The Problem of Beauty. I was just, I'm teaching an undergrad class and I was just making a case for a three hour block period about the existence of beauty. And it was so foreign to these students that they just had never thought about it that way. And yet when we got towards the end, they were like, wow, this makes sense. Why do you think it's so hard for people, Christians and non-Christians, to grasp the idea of objective beauty? And then maybe just talk about how you said it was the beauty that really drew you in, not just the truth of Christianity. Yeah. That's, you know, I'm still working on this. I, I encountered it uh, first and foremost at the, uh, in my cultural apologetics class with John Mark Reynolds at Biola. So I had never encountered it until I came across John Mark Reynolds, who was making a case for it in his class. And uh, I didn't really begin to flesh it out until I started encountering uh, people like Dr. Holly Ordway and Phil Talon, who are at Houston Baptist University. And they started to put you know, the words to what I was thinking in my mind. And basically, I think that Christians, we, we've been talking about this, that Christians they they understand objective truth and they argue for it and they understand objective goodness and they're arguing for that but they've allowed a secular view of beauty to creep in which is that beauty is in the eye of the beholder so it's completely subjective there's nothing objective about beauty and yet traditionally three of the transcendentals of god have been goodness truth and beauty uh, that we know what is beautiful because god is beautiful so as we've sort of walked away from studying that, talking about it, really framing that, and, it, and that's more in the Protestant faith. I noticed that um, the Catholics still are making these, this argument and are working on it. But as we in like the evangelical Protestant community have sort of stepped away from that, we've lost an understanding of what it's for um, and why we should study it and does it matter. And I think that really um, that really bankrupts our view of who God is. And because it, it relates him down to just um, almost this rational propositional truth that this is true, rather than is there anything we can know aesthetically about God? And is there anything we should be doing to enjoy God aesthetically, which really broadens out and uh, it makes a more robust or more holistic relationship with God? I totally agree. It's good, it's true, and it's beautiful. In fact, some of the biggest critiques today are not only that Christianity is false, but that's not good and that it certainly lacks beauty. So I love that you brought that in your book. Let me ask you a last question that that I'm curious about because my journey to faith was from within a Christian family. From looking in, you mentioned how sin was difficult more personally to accept the Christian story. Were there any issues like, say, miracles or Jesus being the only way that were hardest to swallow intellectually? Like, you'd ever have that moment like, do I really believe Jesus rose from the grave and this is a miracle? What were those like apologetic issues or even once you were in the faith that you maybe wrestle with the most? Yeah, I think for me, the initial draw to God was really strong um, in that I wasn't thinking apologetically. I was I was more on this journey of what is the explanation of all this uh, goodness, truth, and beauty I'm experiencing, and and then God made sense to me. But mm. when I, it was after I got into the church that I saw um, a lack of these things, a lack of people searching for the goodness, truth, and beauty of God, and it was not just 
one-off incidents. It was a pattern where people didn't seem really committed to um, searching for God. And that caused me those doubts. And those doubts that I struggled with was, how do I know that this is true? Um, I can give a testimony. Like I can say, I believe that I had an experience with God. But then I realized as I was studying Mormonism, that they could say the same thing. Like, I believe that, you know, I believe in God and they could give me a testimony about the burning in their bosom. And I was like, how is mine different? And I couldn't figure out how mine was different. So then I started to look for, um, why do I say the Bible's reliable? I don't know. And I went looking for answers to that. That was a big hang up for me is how do I know the Bible's reliable? Um, then I didn't know how, why I said Jesus rose from the dead. Like I had nothing on that. So that was another one for me that really impacted me. And, and finding Gary Habermas's work on that was real. Cha- it was a real eye, eye opener for me about how much evidence there is. Um, and finding the work of guys like uh, Daniel Wallace on the embarrassment of riches we have for the reliability of the scripture, another eye opener for me. I'd never been taught any of these things in the church, so I didn't know they existed. So my struggle was actually out of ignorance on this material. I didn't, I didn't know there were good, great answers to this. Well, Mary Jo Sharp, we are grateful that you came on the show with us. I want to commend your work to our listeners. I hope that we'll check out confidentchristianity.com, confidentchristianity.com for a number of resources you have, but in particular, pick up your most recent book, Why I Still Believe. And I think what's unique about it is you just, I know it took you a lot of time as you walk through your journey and your experience, and you include apologetic truth, but you do it in an inviting narrative format that I think will strengthen believers, but also give non-believers something to think about. So keep up the great work. Super proud of you, especially as a Biola grad and a friend. So thanks for coming on the show. Hey, I really appreciate you guys having me on. You bet. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Mary Jo Sharp, and to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. That's biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything.